I feel like I can go now. Praise the Lord. So I shared with you a couple of weeks, uh, well, last week actually, when I shared the first message entitled Nevertheless, Nevertheless Part 1, um, Living in a Liar's World. Well, I want to continue the message Nevertheless this week, and I want to talk about the pivot to eternity. Uh, you might want to get ready getting your gospel open to Matthew, Matthew chapter 26, and verse 36, um, and we're going to visit with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. I want to say as you're turning and finding Matthew 26, that a number of years ago, I read a little book by my, one of my favorite, favorite authors, Mark Rutland. Dr. Mark Rutland, if you just go on Amazon, find anything by him and buy it and read it. He's just, just, he digs gold out. Hallelujah. Well, I read this little book called Nevertheless, and it so blessed me. It so filled me. I thought I would love to get Mark to come here and share with my church about Nevertheless. Well, it's been a number of years. He hasn't come. So I decided, you know what? I'm going to preach his book. I'm just going to preach his book. Hallelujah. And so I'm going to share this week and maybe another week or two, a couple of weeks perhaps, out of this book, nevertheless, because it, 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 it identifies perhaps the most powerful word given from the English language to a believer to be able to pivot, to be able to transform from the world of limitation and deception and doubt and accusation and to be able to find that passageway and to pivot into God's world of freedom, hallelujah, and blessing. Nevertheless, I want you to learn this word. I want you to put it in your verbal arsenal and know how to use it. Jesus used, <coughs> used it the night that he was betrayed as he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. Let's go there now and read this account with me. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Let me pause for a moment. Those disciples who had been with Jesus every single day probably, probably never saw him like they were about to see him. Always confident, always assertive, something was happening. The Bible says he began to get sorrowful and become troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, surrounded by grief, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and he prayed saying, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So we think about Jesus entering that dark moment. And we're, gonna, we're going to hover around that moment for the rest of this message because something dramatic happened. And out of it, not only came our salvation, but comes an authority to be ambassadors for Christ and to operate in this world as Jesus operated. You know, 
there's one thing about this present world of sin that's consistently good. It's consistently good at it. It does well. And that is injecting hopelessness into every aspiration. What response do we have left to a pessimistic world that harasses the value of every good thing with fault-finding? Who among us has not at some time lamented to God at some point, saying, if there's an eternal purpose, I can no longer see it. Where is it? No wonder Satan is called the God of this world. If you live in this world, you know what it's like to be shut down with pessimism and to have that vision escape elusively escape from you, and the world around you is just locked up with fault-finding and accusation. In the face of a relentless accuser, we need a turnaround word. We need a simple handheld device, simple weapon to put on our lips, a key that'll unlock the door, a turnaround word, nevertheless. So I want you to come with me into the garden with Jesus as he determines our destiny in the most intense prayer battle ever fought where man's historic record will collide with eternity's purpose. In just that few minutes of praying, the most crucial few moments in all of human history were those few moments that Jesus prayed was in agony, struggled, sweat drops of blood. Something was going on. First of all, as Jesus begins to pray, the terror of what lies just a few hours ahead of him overcomes him and forces his humanity up to the surface of his consciousness as his deity subsides back into the corners of his soul. All of Jesus' senses as a human become peaked and jump up as Jesus of Nazareth becomes one with us. He begins his prayer and quickly begins to transition. He's us. He is the praying sinner, scared to death, facing judgment. Isaiah 53, 3-5, you've heard it, I'm sure, many times, but let's listen to it again and hear the words of the prophet. He was despised and rejected by people, one who experienced pain and was acquainted with illness. People hid their faces from him. He was despised and we considered him insignificant, but... He lifted up our illness. He carried our pain. Even though we thought that he was being punished, attacked by God, and afflicted for something he had done. He was wounded because of our rebellious deeds, not his own. He was crushed because of our sins, not his own. He endured punishment that made us well because of his wounds, we have been healed. 
As Jesus is praying, he's considering, trying to continue to hold on to and grasp the purpose that has led him there to that moment in the garden, praying. And as he considers the purpose that's brought him to that place, the utter fatality and the dominion of our sin rises up in front of him like a great skyscraper blackening out the sky of hope and of purpose. And the devil begins to present his case against us to Jesus. And as he does, what becomes evident is that we are irreconcilably undeserving of such a noble sacrifice that he's about to give. Jesus is stopped in his prayer. I would say paralyzed. I'm probably not going too, too far with it. All his human senses and reasonings are now on the surface, dominating his mind. And the thing that fills his mind as Satan is hissing in his ears, they are not worthy. They are faithless. Look at even your own disciples ran off after cutting off the high priest's servant's ear, after swearing all kinds of, of commitments of allegiance, they've abandoned. They're never going to be right. They are irreconcilably undeserving of what you are about to do. What do you think you're doing? It's for nothing. You are throwing your life away. Tipping under the weight of our chronic unworthiness. The scales of justice bottom out against us. Imagine those scales. Man is weighed in the balance. You and I, all of us, and boom, that scale can't go down any farther. It bottoms out. That's how unworthy and that's how airtight the case is against you and I. As our accuser presses his point to Jesus, every earthly rationale in favor of us being God's children dissolves in the charges he lays out against us. There is no mercy to be found in the facts of our case. I hope you understand that Jesus could not get up from that prayer and go to Calvary's cross because he found a speck of hope, because he found a loophole, because he found anything good in us. There was nothing in the case against us. Every fact condemned us to death. And now Satan tears into the mind of Jesus and begins to speak directly to him. I've sown treason into their very souls, even your own disciples, so that you cannot forgive them. He is arguing as a prosecutor with Jesus. You're not able to forgive them. I have made them treasonous. Through their sins, I've made them my subjects. I control them, and I have turned them into your enemies. Satan continues, and now I've lured you to this pointless end. 
and your death will be a useless gesture. You're going to simply die with the criminals. That's all that's going to happen here a few hours from now. Don't kid yourself. Nothing noble, nothing heavenly, nothing supernatural. You're just simply going to fail. You're simply going to die, and I will keep ruling humanity. Can you imagine why Jesus is sweating? His human mind, his human brain cannot process without the help that's about to come. In his humanity, what's happening, what's going on in this great spiritual Armageddon between Jesus and the prosecutor, Satan thinks he's won as Jesus of Nazareth, center of consciousness, shifts from being the Son of God to being the Son of Man. He becomes you and I pleading for our lives, trying to avoid execution. At this point, the intercessory transposition has begun, if it's possible. May this cup pass from me. When at any time in the gospel have we ever heard an utterance, anything like that, from the lips of Jesus? Is there any way I could get out from doing this? So anyway, this doesn't have to happen. You can hear the franticness. You can hear in the tone and the very words that he says. That is humanity. That's you and I. We're the ones speaking those words through Jesus. No, no, please. There's got to be another way. This can't be it. You understand? Up till now, We've read in the Gospels, we've read these accounts and we thought, well, he was just kind of going through a, a formality. This was not an act. He wasn't putting on a demonstration. This was happening. Humanity. Jesus was human and he was divine. He had a full, complete human nature and it was for that very purpose so that he could become the Lamb of God. Not just so that he could symbolically gesture on our behalf at Calvary's cross, but so that he could become us broken in sin. If possible, let this cup pass from me. At this point, he is completely in character. As a pleading sinner, being dragged to the gallows. Please, I don't want to die like this. That's what our Savior was. I don't want to die like this. The Bible says despising the shame. He despised what he saw ahead of him. Everything in him shuddered. I don't deserve this. This isn't fair. Oh, Father, please. You see now, he is lending his full emotions, his full personality to humanity, to you and I. We were in that garden crying out through Jesus. And he felt every cry as he said, there must be another way. Both man and Messiah are bound together in Jesus, wrestling with his impending crucifixion. 
Jesus' mind is firing between his two identities. He's feeling everything that sinners feel facing the crucifixion for their sins. Can this cup pass from me? You know, maybe, maybe I could just get up. I am the Son of God. I'll just leave. We don't have to do this. I'll just be their king. I'll just get it. I'll leave the garden. I'll be their king. I can make the world a better place. You know, um, I can protect the disciples. We can grow. We can grow a body. All the crazy human thoughts. Maybe I don't have to do this. Can, what was the question? This cup pass from me. Can this cup pass from me? And then his soul rebounds from within him. The Lamb of God rises up from within him and speaks absolutely no way. Because if it passes from you, it passes to them. Do you realize he took the cup because if he didn't, you would have to drink it. At that moment, the Lamb of God rises up within Jesus and he sees not just the cross, he sees through the cross. And he sees something on the other side of the cross. Hallelujah. He sees eternal facts that now usurp, destroy, overcome, and overwhelm all the facts the prosecutor has laid out and terrified his soul with. He sees beyond the cross facts that will obliterate the prosecutor's claims. What does he see? He sees a father waiting who loves us on the other side of Calvary. It is the vision of agape. It is the vision of the father's love. The very thing that he is. He is the love of God made flesh. He simply gathers his own being, his own identity. He sees the Father in him. The Bible says that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. God was working in him. Not afraid of letting him have that human experience. Not afraid of allowing him to go through the terror, the misery of having to have the accusations from the prosecutor pressed down through his soul because the word made flesh would rise up. He saw agape. He saw the love of God. He saw a reason. Somebody say hallelujah. On the other side of Calvary. In fact, Hebrews chapter 12 verse 2 says, Jesus who for the joy set before him endured the cross despising its shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. It was the joy set before him. You see, something that the devil overlooked, something Satan was not able to see, he's never comprehended, he's never understood, Jesus saw. And he came into this world knowing he would see it at the right moment. You see, the prosecutor, Satan, based all his rationales against us, all his arguments against us, he based them on judgment. 
The only thing the devil knows is how to judge, how to accuse. He is called the accuser, and he's darn good at it. He doesn't follow the rules, but he sure loves to make sure that those who don't follow the rules other than him know about it. It's how he controls people. It's how he manipulates people. How much we despise people who flagrantly cast off the yoke of responsibility to have to follow the rules or live within the boundaries, yet they use every opportunity that comes into their hand to control you and to condemn you when you don't follow those rules. We hate people like that. We despise that kind of character. Why, why is it? I know we feel like we're Christians, we shouldn't hate anybody, but I'm gonna stand up here and tell the truth. I, when I see people like that, there's a hate that comes from me. Do you know why? I'm hating Satan. I'm hating the murderer, I'm hating the liar. I'm hating the one that just loves to punish and condemn people for the very thing that they themselves practice liberally on a regular basis. But Jesus looked through Calvary and he saw in the Father, hallelujah, a joy set before him. He saw something the prosecutor couldn't handle. Everything the prosecutor had based all of his arguments on was judgments. But see, Satan can't handle love. He doesn't understand it. He can't see it. He doesn't understand it. He's, he knows that people fall in love. He knows that people have love. And he figures out little plots and plans to try to use the power of love against people to trip them up. But agape, the love of God, he's never understood it. He just doesn't get it. But Jesus knew what this was all about. This was all about ushering us to a place where our sins could be removed so that love could take hold of us and bring us back home to where we belong. Why do we want to marry and have children? Why do we create families? Because it's, there is an essential knowing, believing, desire, a design within us to be a family. Psalm 68, he puts the solitary in families because God is an eternal father. He's building a family. Hallelujah. Jesus saw love bringing us home. Satan couldn't deal with that. He had no idea. All he thought is, if I can shame Jesus and get him to do what everybody else does, just say, I'm not going to forgive these people. This is ridiculous. And uh, he said, then it'll be too late. I'll have him in the clutches of the Romans, and the Jews will reject him. He'll die a wasted life, wasted death, meaningless. That's what Satan figured was about to happen. But what he couldn't see was what was coming next. Hallelujah. Love and mercy is about to triumph over justice and judgment. Praise God. And now with Jesus' mind firmly fixed on the Father's will, he who ever lives to make intercession for us sweeps aside all of Satan's accusations and threats, and with that one word, nevertheless, he pivots to the facts of eternity. 
brushing aside all the temporal arguments and facts of our unworthiness and our guilt, he sees a place where all those can be drowned in the sea of forgetfulness. Nevertheless, you see, nevertheless is that conjunctive verb modifying the claims of lesser facts by pivoting to truths that can never be diminished by opposing arguments and objections. Nevertheless is that verbal fulcrum of heaven upon which all of the facts that the devil can muster against you must give way to the eternal fact that you belong to God. <laughs> it's just, it just makes you want to laugh. It's like I said earlier, I, I just love to laugh. The Bible says God laughs at his enemies. Love laughs at the accuser trying to slay us. And he tried to take down Jesus in the garden with judgment. He was playing he was playing a losing game. Jesus is the one who set those boundaries. Jesus is the one who laid out the, the facts of judgment. But there was something else that Jesus had that the devil never could factor in, and that was love. Somebody say, praise the Lord. You see, God has furnished you with that verbal access code that unlocks the passageway between the world of denial and deception and defeat and the wonderful kingdom of God, the kingdom of truth, the kingdom of freedom and of miracles. But he's laid that word down, that pivotal utterance. Nevertheless, what is it that lies on the other side of that pivotal utterance that could possibly overthrow the insurmountable mountain of condemning facts against you and forestall your judgment, much less sweep it away. What could be said? What facts were there on the other side of nevertheless? If you're in an argument with somebody and they come up against you and they lay a mountain of facts to you and you go nevertheless, you better have something to follow that nevertheless up with. Well, what? Nevertheless, what? What could there be? What did God have that would sweep all of that away? Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Why was that so powerful? Why was that so absolutely finite and unconquerable? You mean that God who set the boundaries of judgment himself, who sentenced sin to death, the argument the devil was using, to try to keep Jesus from being the intercessor of our lives and, and issuing forgiveness to us, that God who set those boundaries said that sin must be put to death, that there was something else in the will of God besides judgment. There was something else in his will to turn the murder of Jesus into the triumph of humanity. And the answer is, you bet. Yes, there was something else in the will of God that would turn the murder of Jesus into our triumph. And this was it. God said, my son will carry your sins into judgment at the cross. And there he's going to ask me for the one favor 
that he's earned the right to ask. In the middle of his crucifixion, he looks upon us. This was the moment that his nevertheless was going to pay off. All heaven is listening as the Lamb of God is dying on Calvary's cross. He has a request. Father will give him whatever he asks. He doesn't ask to come down off the cross. He doesn't ask for the punishment of his enemies. That's already in the works. What does he ask for? The one thing the Father says, I'll never deny him. Just ask for it. Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. The Father said, absolutely, I will. Absolutely, I will. Do you see that the will of God is insurmountable? Satan has no argument against the will of God. Why could God honor the request to forgive the world for crucifying Jesus? I'll tell you why. Because God so loved the world. You see, love never fails. Love cannot be conquered. A father loves his children even when they're at their worst. Love is something the prosecutor never understood. And when Jesus was fully in the agony of his human emotions and couldn't see any reason, any way out, as he continued to press through, this is the reason why don't ever give up in prayer. Don't allow yourself to be overwhelmed. Don't allow the devil to talk you into a premature amen in your prayer. Hang in there. Stay in there. Wait for the Holy Spirit because the Lamb of God will rise in you as it rose in Jesus. He saw the love and the joy that was set before him. He couldn't wait for that moment in the most awful moment of agony in his life. He performed his greatest miracle I ask this request, grant it, Father, forgive them. What can separate us? Paul said nothing. Paul had this revelation. He said nothing. Nothing can separate us. I will. 2 Corinthians 5, I'll close with this. Verse 19 through 21, Paul writes. In other words, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting people's trespasses against them, and he has given to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making this appeal through us. We plead with you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made the one who did not know sin to become sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He earned the right to say, I don't care what they've done, forgive them. And he became sin, and he took that punishment that set us free. Hallelujah. So in this, 
as I opened up with the question. In this pessimistic, pessimistic world that harasses the value of every good thing with fault-finding, remember, there's a will of God beyond the prosecutor's case. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Keep at the ready your access code to eternity. Always be ready to stand in the intercessor's place. Nevertheless, there's a better set of values, there's a better set of facts than the ones the devil is trying to paralyze you with. Nevertheless, God's will, he loves you, is to set you free. Close your Bible, stand with me this morning.